I V M. Welcome to States of Anarchy. I'm your host, Hamsini Hariharan. Every week on the show, we discuss global affairs and foreign policy, all in the hope of making a little more sense of the world around us. This is our Q and A episode, where I feature questions and doubts from you. Today, we have two questions from Ishan Sharma and Adil Lari. First is Ishan's question that we got on Instagram. He says, "What are the recent implications of the Doval meet in Afghanistan?" Thank you for your question, Ishan. I think India's role in Afghanistan's peace talks are not very well known, and it definitely needs to be touched on. This year marks the twentieth year of the U.S. invasion in Afghanistan. The war started back in two thousand and one after the nine eleven attacks. The United States of America believed that the Taliban was providing cover for Osama bin Laden, and so they invaded it. The war stretched on for years, and then, as you know, bin Laden was finally killed in Abbottabad. Since 2018, the U.S. has been negotiating with the Taliban, and they finally signed a peace deal last February. According to a report by the Observer Research Foundation, the U.S. promised to withdraw 5,400 troops and to reduce international military presence in Afghanistan. In exchange, the Taliban agreed to reduce violence and prevent other terrorist groups like the Al Qaeda and ISIS from operating on Afghan ground. The Afghan government and the Taliban have also been engaging in talks since last year. On January fifth, the two parties resumed talks in Doha, in Qatar. It's in the middle of this that Ajit Doval, India's national security adviser, went to Afghanistan. His two-day visit was completely unannounced to the world outside. So Doval landed in the capital city of Kabul on thirteenth January, and during his visit, he met with a number of high-ranking officials at the presidential palace. According to President Ashraf Ghani's spokesperson, Doval's talks with President Ashraf Ghani focused heavily on counterterrorism measures. President Ghani was quoted saying that India and Afghanistan's joint efforts with NATO and the U.S. will be able to succeed in the fight against terrorism. President Ghani was quoted saying that India and Afghanistan's joint efforts with the NATO and the U.S. will be able to succeed in the fight against terrorism. Doval also met with the head of the High Council of National Reconciliation, Abdullah Abdullah, who is the other important figure in Afghan politics. They primarily discussed India's role in establishing peace in Afghanistan, and Doval's Afghan counterpart, Hamdullah Mohib, also addressed the agenda of strategic mutual interests, building peace, and fighting terrorism. Doval heartily backed Mohib's sentiment of jointly combating terrorism. He also spoke about how no part of the war-ravaged land should be used to perpetrate more violence, as reported by a Times of India article. Of course, the two also talked about other common interests. Now, you may wonder why is India so involved in Afghanistan? This is not a new phenomenon by any means. India has been a major stakeholder in Afghanistan's peace and stability for years now. There's another ORF report. That says that India's involvement began in the 1990s, not long after the Soviets withdrew from Afghanistan. India supported its neighbor by backing and arming what came to be known as the Northern Alliance. This alliance was against the Taliban. It's because of this history that Afghan officials expect India to take on a proactive role in establishing peace in Afghanistan. Abdullah Abdullah has said that India's role in establishing lasting peace in Afghanistan is vital. That's why the Indian government has also made heavy financial investments in Afghanistan. India invested two billion U.S. dollars in aid and reconstruction activities. 
last November, India also introduced a package of more than 100 high-impact community projects. This was worth another $80 million. India offers a lot of scholarships to Afghan students, and as you know, even helps train the Afghan cricket team. A quick fun aside, the Afghanistan cricket team trains in Noida and Dehradun, and in the 2019 World Cup, one of their main sponsors was Amul. Anyway, back to high politics, India has always been quick to back a reconciliation process that is Afghan-led, Afghan-owned, and Afghan-controlled. So it comes as no surprise that India has been keenly following what's happening with the US-Taliban deal. So coming to the implications of this recent meet, you've probably understood by now that India is highly supportive of the peace talks between Afghanistan and the Taliban. However, there is something that India is slightly wary of. A Times of India article states that there were a series of videos released in December which linked the Taliban to Pakistan. The videos were proof that the Pakistani officials had intelligence on all the Taliban leaders in their country and their continued activity on Pakistani territory. This information has essentially confirmed long-held speculations that Pakistan has been harboring terrorist groups and even provided training grounds for them. It obviously complicates Afghanistan's efforts to negotiate peace. Another important aspect, of course, is regional security. If India does withdraw from Afghanistan or if the Taliban comes back to power, what does that mean for India's national security? Some of the terrorist groups backed by the Taliban have declared their support for Kashmiri freedom, which could mean more terrorism in India. Since Afghanistan is a part of South Asia, close geographical proximity means that whatever happens within the country will have security implications for India. During his meet, Doval expressly emphasized that Afghan grounds shouldn't become the base for any anti-Indian activities. An article in the print says, and I quote, India has been maintaining that care should be taken to ensure that any such process does not lead to any ungoverned spaces where terrorists and their proxies can relocate, end quote. Doval states that such activities would definitely harm the peace efforts that are being made by all the countries involved. As for implications, I think it's important to remember that Ajit Doval was the head of the Indian intelligence for a decade before being appointed as the NSA. Given his position, Doval has important connections with intelligence in other countries, including Afghanistan. So there will be a number of diplomatic meetings out of the public eye that the media won't be able to dig their claws into. And because of the covert nature of security cooperation, we possibly won't know the full implications until much, much later. Here's an interesting fact about the U.S.-Taliban deal. Both sides prefer not to use the term peace deal in reference to this agreement. This is possibly because infighting between the Taliban and Afghan troops have continued. So what will happen with the new Biden administration in Afghanistan? What will this mean for India? We'll just have to wait and watch. Our second question today comes from Adil Lari. Adil had asked the States of Anaki team on Instagram to explain the recent Qatar deal. Thank you for the question, Adil. This is an extremely interesting topic, partly because this is a contemporary event and partly because the answer to the question can help explain a tiny fraction of West Asian geopolitics. So what exactly is the recent Qatar deal? For context, Qatar is small but an extremely wealthy oil nation in West Asia. Most of Qatar's power in the region is attributed to its large oil and natural gas resources. On this basis, Qatar is also involved in a lot of disputes as a leading mediator of the region to boost its soft power. One research paper by the Middle Eastern Institute mentions that at least three major cases of Qatari intervention in Lebanon, Sudan, and Yemen. 
A fun fact, which is a testament to Qatar's mediation, is that Doha, Qatar's capital, also houses the only international office of the Taliban. And guess what? It was only established for peace talks between the Taliban and the US and has been functioning on and off since 2013. Now, Qatar's relations to its neighbor, especially Saudi Arabia, the UAE and Bahrain, have always had highs and lows. But to really understand the Qatar crisis, we have to keep in mind two important things. The first is what we call regime security in international relations. Regime security basically means that the internal threats that a government faces, like military coups or insurgency or domestic rivals, have a big influence on its foreign policy. And this is an important factor in the Gulf region, where a number of countries are absolute monarchies. Now, you remember the Arab Spring of 2011, which led to four monarchies to fall. The Muslim Brotherhood regime rose to power in Egypt, and many Arab regimes, aside from Qatar, were very alarmed. Islamists had, after all, taken power following a popular revolution and a democratic election. Particularly, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and Jordan emerged as key allies, most of them even outlawing the Muslim Brotherhood as a terrorist organization. And then there were several other crises, like the Syrian civil war, the Libyan civil war, the rise of the Islamic State or ISIS, the Iranian nuclear deal, which shook the region up. The story of the Qatar crisis starts with an incident almost four years back, in 2017. On 23rd May 2017, the state-run Qatari news agency ran a series of statements allegedly by the Qatari ruler supporting Iran and Hamas. Qatar said that their website was hacked and the Emir had never even made a speech. But the other Arab states considered this a tipping point for their long-standing on-and-off animosity. So on 9th June, nine Arab states, headed by Saudi Arabia, UAE and Bahrain, cut all diplomatic ties with Qatar. These nations also put in a blockade from land, sea and air as a punishment. This was huge for Qatar because it's dependent on imports and trade because it's a small peninsula. So in return for lifting the blockade, the Arab states made a list of 13 steep demands. These included downgrading ties with Iran and Turkey, shutting the iconic Al Jazeera media network, handing over wanted individuals, cutting off funding for problematic groups, as well as financial compensation for all the trouble caused. Since the USA's stance was ambiguous, the expectation of the blockade was either that Qatar would give in to these demands or that people would rise up against their ruler in favor of accepting these demands. But neither of these things happened. Qatar rejected the allegations, said that the trigger statements were works of hackers. Qatar also rejected the demands and said that they were undermining its sovereignty. And completely opposite to what was expected, Qatar, in fact, found friends in Iran and Turkey. Iran offered its airspace to Qatar as an alternative, and business in Qatar continued as usual. On its monetary strength, Qatar could also afford to airlift food and other essential services for people without any relative problems. A lot of scholars thought this blockade was futile because it didn't really do anything that would harm Qatar. But as one BBC article put it, what it did do was push Qatar into the hands of nations that the Arab states wanted to keep at bay, like Iran and Turkey. So what finally happened? After three and a half years, last month, on January 5th, 2021, the Arab states decided to lift the blockade and resume diplomatic and trade ties with Qatar. Mind you, the blockade was lifted without Qatar agreeing to any of the demands. 
It's speculated that the Trump administration and a painstaking mediation by Kuwait made the deal possible. The prime reason behind the end of the feud was to curtail the growing relations of Qatar and Iran. This was also in the hopes of bringing back Qatar into the Arab-Islamic fold again. The questions still remain as to whether Qatar and its neighbors are on the same page about multiple issues that are clashing between them. But for now, the focus is on smoothening relations, getting foreign policies, trade and economies back on track, all while Qatar prepares for the 2022 FIFA World Cup. On that note, we come to the end of today's podcast. Thank you, Ishan and Adil, for your questions. I'm attaching links about Dova's visit and the recent Qatar deal in the episode description, so do check those out. This episode was written along with Aishmita Banerjee and Vineet Vadavkar. If you have follow-up questions about Afghanistan or Qatar or anything else in global affairs and foreign policy, then just email me at ibmstatesofanarchy at gmail.com or you can DM me on Instagram at statesofanarchy or on Twitter at H. If you want to show us some love, send this episode to someone who you think may enjoy it. You can also leave us a rating on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. You can listen to States of Anarchy not only on the IBM podcast app or website, but every single other podcast app that's out there. We'll be back next week. <laughs>